Hi, and welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. Today is Monday, March 23rd, 2020. I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at TPI, joined by my co-host, TPI Senior Fellow, Sarah O. And today we are honored to be joined by journalist Rob Pegararo. Rob covers tech policy at Yahoo Finance, writes a tech help column for usatoday.com, offers telecom and gadget guidance at Wirecutter, and contributes to Fast Company, Consumer Reports, Ars Technica, PCMag.com, Boing Boing, VentureBeat, and Discovery News. Welcome, Rob. Hello. So, nice to be uh, here, virtually speaking. Yes, right. So, of course, we're doing this by Zoom, like most business seems to be happening these days. At least it's a good setup for a podcast. So how's working from home going? Well, it's been my everyday reality since 2011. So in that respect, not too bad. The difference is <laughs> until two weeks ago, it was a solitary experience. And instead now my wife is downstairs on a call because she's working from home as well. Our kid is, I hope she is doing her homework right now. <laughs> Adequate parenting is a really good phrase to keep in mind. <laughs> for everybody right now. Yes, I have the same hopes for my kids and I have a strong suspicion they're doing something else. Yeah. And so of before, course, as you all can see, I'm growing a plague beard because, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's five minutes I don't have to spend each day shaving. Right, well, that's true. We could also ask them, you know, whoever was wearing pants to raise their hands because, you know, <laughs> you can't tell. <laughs> so before we get into the things we, we want to talk about, about tech, but I just want to also ask, how is it different reporting when it's harder to meet people in person? And Because that's always such a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the direct effect it's had for me is I've now wiped off, I don't see, Global World Congress, South by Southwest, Old Carriers Show, seven, eight different conferences have now wiped off my schedule. So in essence, I count on going to events both in DC and in the rest of the world to connect with people who know what they're talking about and who will be good sources for stories. So it sort of freezes my pool of people who know what they're talking about. You know, I'm lucky in that so much of what I do, the reporting is already in the form of speaking to people, whether it's on the phone or Zoom or an email, not necessarily, you know, man on the street interviews have never been a huge staple of my coverage. Mm -hmm. But certainly, you know, I've done stories in the past where I've gone into a neighborhood and, okay, which of these houses has got, it definitely has a fiber connection. They've got that skinny line coming from the utility pole. I'll knock on the door. That's not happening anymore. Right. Interesting. All right. So just over the weekend, you wrote a story about data caps and the fact yep. that we no longer have them for the most part. You know, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, so this is one I actually sort of, like any good freelancer, I tried to sell the story twice. I first did a piece for USA Today that ran uh, last weekend about all the steps various telecom companies have taken to make it easier for Americans to work from home. And it started when Carl Bode, a journalist with rights advices, motherboard side, among others, mm-hmm. called out ISPs for retaining data caps when people are being forced to retreat to home, to work from home, to have their kids learn from home. You know, hey, this is really not helpful. That one terabyte limit that you had might have seemed reasonable when it was just Netflix and the occasional game, and then everyone was away from the house during the day you know, lift those caps. And AT&T responded later that afternoon. So Carl deserves some credit for making things happen. And then things snowballed. Comcast said the next day they were going to lift their caps. So did CenturyLink by, I think, the Monday of the week after Cox did the same. And so I revisited this and checked among the list of the 10 biggest ISPs as judged by Lightman Research Group. And all the ones that had had data caps had lifted them. So there are two conclusions I draw from that. Number one is... You know, you could sort of justify data caps as like, well, you know, some people just use their connection more than others. We should monetize that. But in this case, you've got 
a serious need for people to be able to do as much as they can online and saying, we should monetize this because we can is not going to hold up. Essentially, data caps in the context of where broadband were artificial scarcity and charging money based on artificial scarcity looks different in this context. Two, I talked to a few different analysts and they all said, you're not going to be able to bring these back. Once you take it away and you show that your system doesn't actually break down in this situation of national and international crisis, how are you going to charge for it later on? And, how many people, you know, do, how many households do you think this it affects? It's unclear. You know, back when Comcast's data cap was only 300 gigs, which at mm-hmm. the time seemed a huge amount. I knew somebody who blew through it. He was testing a bunch of different online backup services. Now the odds are much higher. It does depend on what you're doing. We're using Zoom right now. And I think I looked this up for Fast Company, the amount of data used for that, it's not that much. You know, if you want to put a dent in your data cap, the biggest thing you can do is stream a lot of 4K video on Netflix or yeah, Amazon. Right. That's good for 25 megabits per second. Yeah, Zoom, their bandwidth requirements top out at three megabits per second for group HD calling. So we're doing that right now. But it's all these little things. And fundamentally, one of my biggest complaints with ISP data caps is even if you want to do the right thing and play by the rules and whatever, it's hard because none of these ISPs give you tools to say, oh, you went over the cap because your kid was on Minecraft too much or you binge watched a lot of 4K stuff. That's what constituted it. That's a measurement you can only take at the router level. You know, mm-hmm. looking at how much data your iPad used up tells you nothing useful. There aren't great tools to evaluate on a computer by computer basis, much less on your connected TV. So, you know, we may never know really how many people were avoided having to pay a data cap because this limit was raised. Those people may never really know what would have put them over that line. So, you know, in essence, we've seen something that reasonable people would have a hard time complying with lifted And if that goes away, that's okay. You know, there are plenty of other ways for a telecom company providing home broadband to make a little extra money off the top, charging people for this when it's fundamentally not a real scarcity. And the the contrary example is what we're seeing in the European Union right now, where a bunch of stream providers have said, we will limit the resolution of our services. If you do get into capacity limits, it's not because people use so much data from March 1st to March 31st. It's because everyone was watching the same thing. Everyone was watching the president's press conference. Which Listeners, please do not do that. Do not watch. Yeah, the no, press there are no benefits to that. <laughs> and that causes a temporary logjam. And data caps don't solve that problem. You know, especially not when you, you don't even know how much data you've used at the time. If this event that captures the world's interest happens a week into the billing cycle, no one's going to be near hitting their data cap if we're still around. I mean, that raises several issues. You pointed out that in Europe, the EU has passed Netflix and YouTube and probably other streaming platforms. Disney sure. Plus has said they'll constrain their resolution. Disney Plus too, right. So like you said, they're, they're lowering their resolution because presumably at least some European networks are becoming congested. What do we, is there a takeaway from that about I mean, our, well, our networks versus theirs, whether we're over-provisioned, whether we've provisioned properly? What do we learn from that? So yeah, this is one where fundamentally, I would like more data points. What I know from certainly talking to Comcast and some analysts around here, US ISPs had decided years ago that you know Netflix is too big to fail in the context. They can't have a crummy Netflix experience. Verizon had a crummy Netflix experience several years ago. It was fixed with a lot of back-end deals. So they built their systems to ensure that everyone can stream and have the video not buffer at night. And all those applications use more data at once than any of the productivity stuff we're doing now. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, 
we're okay. There is more traffic, much more usage during the daytime. That's okay. The system is built for that and it can manage that. I don't know what's the case in the EU. I did just see one of the analysts I talked to, Roger Ender with Recon Analytics, posted a data point that showed at I guess one EU internet exchange, the traffic peak was still at 9 p.m. So we may, I assume we're seeing more streaming going on at night because people can't go to the movies. They can't go to a restaurant, can't go to a bar. People are doing virtual happy hours, which I guess is just a little more data to throw in the pile. And that's a situation who would have built out your network for that use case six months ago. Mm-hmm. Nobody nobody thought we'd be in this position. But presumably the peaks are happening at the same time, you know, relatively the same time in the U.S. and Europe. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely weird in that, you know, the U.S., you had people saying, we can't have net neutrality rules. We need to let people do network management, although reasonable network management was part of the proposition, even mm-hmm. under a lot of net neutrality proposals. Mm-hmm. And the E, where you do have those protections, we now have the situation where, streaming sites are voluntarily reducing their content. I think some of that is probably once Netflix says we'll do it, you can't be the jerk who's like, no, we're good. We're going to keep letting people stream in 4K. We don't care what it does to everybody else. Right. Yeah, those are the people in Fort Lauderdale. They would do that. Yeah. Um, right. Beach. <laughs> like, I mean, of course, there's voluntary and there's voluntary. Yeah. Were they, were they voluntold? <laughs> Voluntold to reduce them. Voluntold is a very good uh, verb. I like that a lot. Yeah. You know, it's it's something when we, when we get out of this, it'll be something to look back and see how this worked, to what extent did high bandwidth sites constraining the usage of their own apps help things out overall. And it's important to remember while we're talking about neutrality, so much of this discussion started when you had executives at U.S. telecoms saying, you know, these people are using my bandwidth, Ed Whitaker of SBC. They're using my pipes. I want to charge them as if he had been in a bucket truck, you know, running cable from pole to pole himself, basically wanting to create a two-sided market, which is not how the internet has historically worked. Not, oh, our network is straining. It's no, I want to charge Yahoo for better placement so that their searches load faster. And so. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, that was just a stupid way to to yeah, start like, off this. I mean, that was never, well, I mean, at least for economists, that was never a right. reason. That was just ridiculous. It was yeah. all about covering fixed costs and, and so on. But yeah, no, it, that's really set the tone for the debate. Yeah. So I don't know. We're going to learn a lot of things about how our networks work and, you know, what puts them under strain, what doesn't. And wireless, one interesting thing has been to see that Sprint and T-Mobile said, in time to make that first USA Today piece I wrote, we're going to give everybody 20 gigs of mobile hotspot data, Mm -hmm. which is a good and useful thing to accommodate the fact that a lot of Americans decided on their own, or maybe they just didn't have any great residential broadband. They were been relying only on smartphone services, something like 27%, I think, in a Pew Research study mm-hmm. survey yeah, done right. last year. And, you know, that's fine if you're just watching Netflix on your phone or your tablet. But distance learning, telework, a lot of those applications, you just cannot use them on a phone. And so in that case, how are these folks getting connected? I think it's really helpful as well that the major cable providers have opened their Wi-Fi hotspot networks to the public. You know, the, these networks are so extensive, Comcast and, and Altus, they use them to backstop the wireless service they resell from companies like Verizon. So that's doing a lot to make broadband more widely available. So, you know, one thing you said was that, of course, it's the, you know, it's the 4K video streaming HD to a, a lesser extent that puts the big bandwidth demand, at least downstream on networks. And one of the last things that's kept mobile from being a perfect substitute for home broadband is, of course, the inability to stream it 
to your television to a big screen because yep. then you would run through your data cap and you would go through a slower, um, even on an unlimited plan, you would go to a speed that's not good enough for, for that. Are they getting closer to, to it actually being something where you could connect your TV to your phone and use the mobile hotspot from your phone? Because that would do that would change the market. Right. And that would definitely put a huge dent into the mobile hotspot cap. Because normally on Sprint's cheapest plan, you have 500 megs of mobile hotspot use, which if you occasionally need to tether your tablet or your laptop, that's fine. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've checked the consumption of my own phone because I will do that if the Wi-Fi at a network is at an, at an event is crummy or they don't post the Wi-Fi password, which too many conference organizers do. Why do people do this? I'll tether up my phone. It's, it's their own network there. management to keep people off it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, sustained streaming will put a huge dent in it. The cheapest unlimited plans, uh, the other three don't include mobile hotspot use at all. I guess now they do. And the normal quotas you have are just not going to let you, you know, stream Netflix from your phone to your TV every night. So I I don't think that's going to change. The 4K and 8K part, that's interesting to me because I fundamentally don't see the value of those two resolutions to a lot of people. 4K, if your TV is under 50 inches, you're going to have to sit like as close as I am to my desktop monitor right now to see a lot of that resolution. And there are people really trying to make 8K happen. And, you know, a few months ago, they were saying, well, you know, it'll get there through streaming. Really? I don't think so. No. Right. Yeah, I agree. I don't see, I mean, even 4K on most people's TVs, you can't tell. I mean, once you get, I mean, a lot of more and more people have TVs that are enough that you can see 4K a little bit, but 8K, it's, no, it's such a boondoggle. You know, until you're, I mean, you know, remember several years ago, they were trying to push 3D TV. That yes. Did, that was horrible. <laughs> but I, I think my Blu-ray player does support 3D TV, uh, the 3D <laughs> standard for Blu-ray discs. So if it ever comes back, I'm prepared. <laughs> you're ready. Do you have also laser discs? Remember those? Uh, no, I do remember those. I do somewhere. I have a small museum of obsolete technology. It doesn't include any laser discs. It does include a digital compact cassette. It's actually on that bookshelf back there. Oh, nice. Uh, I think I have a zip disc in that pile as well. Oh, we actually have, actually, I have sitting over on my, on the wall there, a, a about a 12 inch in diameter thing that looks like a laser disc, but it's a five megabyte hard drive. Ooh, oh, like, like really a nice. SideQuest? I remember using those. Five megabytes. Yeah, exactly. That's when it, it's from my wife's college, actually. Yeah, she had it. Ripped it out of her computer. Outstanding. <laughs> One photograph on Google. Yeah, right. <laughs> so more, well, actually, but let's stay on the uh, network quality for a second, because wireless networks also got more bandwidth to use. Uh, sorry, more spectrum to use. Yes, um, right. And so that seems good and appropriate. There's more demand on all the networks and the spectrums there should be used. What's going to happen afterwards? Are they going to try to keep it? Yeah, it's a little confusing to see because suddenly a bunch of Dish Network 600 megahertz spectrum got handed. Is, is T-Mobile using that now? I think it's T-Mobile, yeah. Yeah, like I need an actual flowchart to see which has gone where. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I honestly didn't know we could actually free up spectrum and put it into use that quickly. So I, that I didn't either. Impressive agility, which is and, a word that's been short supplied to describe the U.S. economy right now. Right. Well, and also uh, apparently our phones can use it, which is not something I expected either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that is, you know, one tech tip to listeners. If your phone, if you've had it for a while, you probably can't use this. There were a lot right. of phones that if you're on T-Mobile, you're not using that 600 megahertz spectrum because that was added to phones relatively recently. You would have had to have bought one in the last two years, I think, to support it. It's Band 71, I think. Hmm. Uh, my friend Sasha Sagan at PCMag.com. If you have any interest at all in spectrum and wireless carriers, Follow him on Twitter. That's S-A-S-C-H-A-S-E-G-A-N. His name is great. 
spell as mine. Yes, great. That's a good tip. So what do you think is going to happen when hopefully this is all over? Are they going to make a case to somehow keep using that spectrum? You know, well, Dish is supposed to be launching, spinning up <laughs> a whole 5G network. Right. There's a lot of people I've talked to in the industry who are like, yeah, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the theory I've heard most often is they will start, but the CapEx is going to break them. And what will happen is a cable company or a consortium of them will move to buy them, which would not be a crazy thing for cable to do, given that, you know, one part of Comcast business that's really growing, it's not pay TV, it's, right. it's wireless phone service. Although that would be a little bit ironic given their push for more spectrum for unlicensed, for them to suddenly move into licensed spectrum. Yeah, you know, everyone uh, everyone has a plan until you, what's that quote? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And <laughs> right. we're, we're all getting punched in the face right now. I'm a little sore, actually. Right, it's true. It's kind of like, it's the same as the expression, I was a great parent until I had kids. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yes, that's. I resemble that remark. <laughs> So how would you grade the FCC's performance? They've actually been pretty good. You know, given that mm-hmm. they don't have a huge amount of tools, you know, the things you could have done by mandate under Title II, you can't anymore. But mm-hmm. I think IGPI in this case has led by example pretty well. The industry has moved rapidly. So I think they've done pretty well. I really cannot fault how they've responded to this. Mm-hmm. It will be interesting to see. There's a lot of proposals as to how can we use the fact that we have all these tracking devices in our pockets smartphones, will that allow for sort of tracing the spread of infections the way it's been done in places like Hong Kong and South Korea? And that's going to run head on into the fact we don't have any great way to address privacy issues except hoping companies do the right thing. Right. Um, And we could have passed some sort of law or framework to do anything about that over the past three years easily. And and now it's definitely not going to get done. So we're just going to have to improvise our way through it. Do you think that necessarily would have helped? I So the example I used to give was in for artificial intelligence, where you end up with two, uh, our preferences sort of conflict in different ways. But it, here it might too, that tracking people who have, who are test positive was an incredibly useful tool. But our preferences here, we may not like that. We may not be comfortable with that. And so on the one hand, we would definitely wouldn't want to do that because the idea of government surveillance is abhorrent. But the cost is less control over how this disease progresses. How do we, how would we balance those two? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple ways you could see it getting played out. One is the fact, you know, the wireless carriers say whatever you want about Google and Facebook and tracking your location in the background. The wireless carriers have had that information all along and they don't even publicly document how long they keep it. Unless it's changed for everybody's reference, Verizon keeps cell site location information for one year. Sprint is 18 months. T-Mobile is two years. AT&T is five years. Clearly, they can't all need that that much data to run their networks, since Verizon seems to do a pretty good job of running their network with only one year of CSLI. Yes, that's a huge amount of data. Where do they store that? I mean, that's a tr- that's a billions and billions of pings it's on a laptop in somebody's car. I hope they remember to lock <laughs> <Right>. it. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah. So on the one hand, you could see that given that until the Supreme Court's Carpenter ruling two years ago, that was information police departments could, you know, just as nicely. Now you need a court order to provide that. But even that has a lot of, you know, emergency exemption grounds. So you could see people requesting that and that would give you pretty accurate information. On the other hand, you know, I actually do find Google's location history that is only I can look at useful. And if I were diagnosed tomorrow with the coronavirus, FYI, I've been taking my temperature every day so far. 
perfectly normal. I do have a dry cough from a cold I had last month. So really, who knows? The first thing I would do would be to pull up my location history and think, where was I? At what point did I interact with other people? And I want to write that down so I could share that with whoever would need to know it. And that is a store of data that I wouldn't have had, you know, 10 years ago. And given that I can't actually log into my T-Mobile account and say, hey, show me your location history. Let me download this. You know, that's one sort of way I could be helpful to determine where I've been. You know, that's a good point because that kind of data exists for almost everybody with from the wireless carriers, like you said, and from Google yeah. and everybody, all of these things that have upset many people for good reasons. It's there. I mean, is it conceivable that the government could just could demand that? I don't even know if that's legal. Sarah, is that legal? Could they do that? Well, I mean, I don't know. I think they under national emergency, they might be able to. But what's interesting about South Korea is I read that they started building the apps, the tracking apps, back when there was a MERS outbreak. So yep. it's not like that they just turned it on. They've been building it for five, 10 years in preparation for another pandemic. So maybe this round of coronavirus will mean like we're going to start building one. So, you know, I don't think they can just turn it on right now, but yeah. it might be an idea that starts percolating. And I've seen on Twitter some like, San Francisco people trying to get the hashtag test and trace going. Mm. So using technology to trace the virus. So it might be an idea that the West gets more comfortable with. I think South Korea is, we have a lot to learn from that. You, you can talk all you want about how China, first they denied this was a problem, then they mobilized at incredible speed. But South Korea is a democracy. It's an industrialized country. They have human rights in place there. And so what do they do that we can adopt? Because it's not like, you know, there, there's some secrets that we can't possibly do it. It wasn't invented here. We can't borrow anything from any other country. No, we should borrow right. a lot because we've screwed up things immensely and no good idea should be ignored because it didn't start up on this side of the Atlantic of the Pacific. Are you hearing people, policy people starting to talk about this? think about it? A little bit. I mean, I think this is going to be a great opportunity. People have been, privacy researchers have been looking for years at, you know, how can we use techniques like differential privacy or federated learning to find some way to take the information that's already getting collected by the devices we carry, extract the useful stuff from it, and then share it in a way that's privacy preserving, but still yields useful insights. And so, you know, to that, I would say Apple and Google, this is your chance to put these learnings into action. Apple's big thing is, yeah, we inject just enough noise into sample results so that we can't identify you in data connected from through our HealthKit framework. Google talks about federated learning, which, for instance, when you see Google Maps say, this restaurant is busy at this time. See how I just dated myself right there? Mm-hmm. This restaurant is busy at no time for the current <laughs> future. That's There's differential privacy built into that as well. Federated learning is when your smartphone processes the data locally and sends the useful stuff anonymized upstream. All those techniques, we should be using them to get actionable insight on where people have been if they had the virus and do that without putting everybody's location history into a gigantic government database. It's kind of seems surprising that tech companies wouldn't be working on that already. Um, Yeah. Yeah. The thing is that the tech companies are also generally not great at talking about this. Apple has made privacy part of their selling products, so they will discuss that. Google, you know, over the last year, you started seeing them at at the Google I.O. developer conference last year. Privacy was a big theme of it, and it was Mm -hmm. kind of an unusual site at a Google conference. But 
they have a lot of smart people. They realize this is something that people are concerned about. And from the ex-Googlers I've talked to, this is something that people do take seriously there. You mentioned that you worked at a polling place for the March 3rd election. So electronic voting or or distance voting, somehow some other kind of voting maybe is going to be more important. What did you learn from your experience? Did it make you, what did you learn? So this was really fascinating. So I've been writing about the security of elections probably since, I guess, the mid-early 2000s. And part of it was I spent a lot of time voting on some really horribly insecure electronic voting machines, win votes terminals, that everything you could have done to make them easy to hack was done. And the, the Commonwealth of Virginia finally decertified them a few years ago. And in the course of learning about this, I kept seeing election security experts say, if you really want to know what's going on, be a poll worker. Anybody can do it if you're a registered mm-hmm. voter. You will learn a lot about how this works in practice. It's a long day, but they'll pay you. And I finally realized I'm going to be in town for Super Tuesday. I can do this. I'm self-employed. I can take the whole day off. I did sort of pause when I realized that they specified polls in Virginia for that election opened at 6 a.m., closed at 7. So they said your workday starts at 5 a.m. and ends oh, at 9 God. p.m. But I'm like, you know what? When else am I going to do this? I should do it. So... Mm-hmm. Number one, people should know that the people who work elections, at least in Arlington County, Virginia, really sweat the details. Everything, every record was done in duplicate. Every hour, the precinct chief did a count. Do the number of people who've checked in at the poll book stations match the number of votes cast in person? At the end of the day, the the statement of results had the signatures of eight different election officials. Everyone swapped places. I spent first few hours working the ballot scanner. I was the scanner officer. It's a title off the Starship Enterprise, I think, <laughs> which meant I got to give out stickers. That's the, the best part of working an election, for sure. Well, that's what everybody uh, wants. That's why they vote. Yeah, then I was checking in people. Then I was working the poll book software. Paper ballots work. People know how to use them. They know how to fill them in. The one question I got was, you know, is it okay if I only filled in part of the little circle? If it's a check mark versus, you know, filling in thing completely. I said, look, the scanning machine, if it thinks you didn't vote, it'll just reject it. If it thinks you voted twice, it'll reject it. Otherwise, put the paper in right side up, upside down, forwards, backwards. As long as it's not sideways, it'll work. So make the technology fit with what people know how to use. So my take on that for remote voting and also based on writing about one company that developed a blockchain-based system by a smartphone app that West Virginia used last year. Mm -hmm. Paper ballots really work. If you have to vote remotely, do it by mail. We know how to do that. Certain states like Washington have been doing it for years. There is infrastructure to spin up. There's things you have to do. The other thing you can do if you want to spread out voting is just make absentee voting and voting in advance easy at a lot of different places. So here in Virginia, fortunately, for reasons unrelated to pandemics, the uh, new Democratic majority of the General Assembly passed a lot of moves that will allow just that. You used to have to provide an excuse for absentee voting. You know, I will be out of town for work or whatever. Hmm. Now, no reason. Just I want to vote absentee now. That turns out to be some some thoughtful policy making for reasons that people didn't really have in mind back in January. I don't think voting by app is the way to do it. The one area where we might need to look at that is Congress, since right now we have at least one Senator, Rand Paul, who tested positive and got his, before getting his result, but after getting the test, he went to the Senate gym. What was he thinking? Yeah. um, We got a bunch of representatives of Congress. That's a defined universe. It's a much smaller number of people. You can lock that down. Plus, of course, 
you know, votes are recorded. <laughs> Doing remote voting with a secret ballot while still making the system uh, auditable afterwards is really, really hard. And paper is one way to allow you to check afterwards and not just accept that what is in the memory of this machine is what actually happened. It is amazing that that's not allowed in Congress. I mean, if this is something that uh, Norman Ornstein at AI has been writing about for, for years, that basically if Congress can't, if the Congress people can't get to Congress, yeah. there is no legislative branch. Yeah, I'd argue the result, I guess, if any more Republicans in the Senate self-quarantine, it will be a Democratic majority. So that might be, I guess, a quick adoption of remote voting for the Senate. Or they'll get them a bunch of hazmat suits and they'll walk in that way. Yes, right. And it'll be a lot of bubble boys and girls in the Senate yeah. chamber. So we're almost out of time. But what do you think we're going to learn for the future? You know, what we learned that we can do at home, we can do remotely. What things will we miss in person that we're going to come back to and not want to give up? So I think on the one hand, this is showing we do kind of have a brittle healthcare system in the U.S., and I'm, I'm really understating this. Given that, you know, testing right now is still so slow, and, you know, there are lots of people who feel sick and can't get tested, and it's taken weeks to decide that, yeah, you know, we, we actually shouldn't charge people for this. Then once you get a $1,000 bill for getting a public health necessary test. Work from home, a lot of people discover that it is possible that it's actually a good thing. And in normal times, I appreciate it. The fact that I can look out my window here, I hear birds chirping, I can see the trees starting to bud. It's really nice. I appreciate mm-hmm. that a lot. At the same time, I also like human contact and it's been really short of that. You know, our, our kids' first words to us this morning were, I miss my friends. I do miss my right. friends. And I think the whole idea that we're not going to go back to in-person interaction and meeting at conferences is crazy. We're social animals. Mm-hmm. We need to get that back. We just need to figure out how do, what do we need to do to not be surprised. Viruses do happen. You know, we can't have the next one start with weeks or months of denial in a country with no freedom of speech, followed by denial in countries that do have freedom of speech, but governments just don't want to accept the unpleasant reality. You think this was just a, a uniquely unfortunate period of time for this to happen in when we had countries that fit both categories? Yeah, yeah. We had a bunch of numbers come up bad in this particular slot machine. And, you know, it could have been worse. You know, we have a virus that does spread rapidly, spreads before people know they have it. But from what we know, it still doesn't actually kill most people who get it. You can construct scenarios in which this could have gone much worse. But as it is, you know, we're going to lose a lot of lives. We're already losing a lot of money. I'm not looking at my 401k. I would like to tell my mom not to do that as well, but she actually does need that money. And right. It's, it's harder. It's harder when you're living off it. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Thank you for joining us. I, yeah, thanks uh, for having me. I hope we talk again, and I hope we'll be looking back and see what did we learn rather than what yes. will we learn. Um, yes, I look forward to having a conversation where we're not bunkered at home. Yes, likewise. So good. Thanks so much, Rob. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Take care. Sarah.